Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yena Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. Oh, and here's Trouble. It's Cameron Wilson from Cricky.com. How are you, Cam? Hello, good to be here with the preeminent anti-fascist podcast in Australia. I'm good, I'm good. Glad to have you. Now, Cam, I guess to start with the elephant in the room, there's the big media story for the past few weeks has been the, the what, are, what are we calling it, the enforced no longer working of Antoinette Latouf from the ABC? Yes. Uh, which seems to be at least partly, according to the paperwork, was due to the her sharing a Human Rights Watch report. Mm-hmm. which seems a little strange. It's a very respectable organisation, but it seems from some of the stories that have come out about various WhatsApp groups who have been lobbying for her no longer being employed by the ABC, they were very upset by some reporting she did with you about the protests at the Opera House. Yeah, that, that's right. So this is reporting by other people about a, 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 a few group chats filled with prominent lawyers and, and also creatives who are pro-Israel who thought for a variety of reasons that Antoinette was not someone who should be on the ABC. And, and the reporting, I think, mostly done or entirely done by nine papers is, shows that, that, that despite them saying, well, mate, we can't necessarily find anywhere where she's actually broken the rules. We're not a fan of her because of a variety of things, including some reporting that we did on questions around claims that pro-Palestinian protesters chanted gas the Jews in front of the Sydney Opera House in the days after the uh, October 7th uh, attack by Hamas. Now, this is an interesting story. Basically, what happened is that there was this protest a few days after October 7. It was at the Opera House. There were pro-Palestine groups, and it was reported by the Australian Jewish Association, which we should note is just a couple of guys, that large groups of protesters had chanted, gas the Jews, which is obviously not very cool guys. But the footage that they presented of this was a little bit weird. If you listen to it, Without reading the subtitles, it didn't really sound like anyone was saying that. And it also seemed some of the audio repeated a little bit throughout their video. There was times when the same audio from earlier in the video was played later in the video over different footage, which suggested that it had been edited. So you and Antoinette looked into this and what did you find? Yeah, so we I, I did a, the initial reporting with Antoinette uh, and then did a follow-up report about a week later. But what I kind of found was that so, so, so the AJA had shared two short clips the day after the protest and it, it, they captioned it saying hundreds of Muslims chanting gas the Jews. 
And the, at least one of the videos that, that went kind of most viral, it was viewed around the world literally millions of times. I've heard secondhand that it's been brought up at, in high level of government. So this is something that truly shocked the world. And obviously, chanting gas the Jews is highly anti-Semitic and it's, and it's a direct incitement to violence, obviously referencing the Holocaust. But what we kind of found afterwards is despite the fact that there's no contention that the protest itself did actually have anti-Semitic chants. There were people chanting "fuck the Jews," obviously bad in 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 and of itself. But the this footage that was shared by the AJA, we we initially reported that both police and independent fact checkers were kind of unable to verify the footage, as in they couldn't say from the footage themselves that that based on the fact that it was edited, not something that is just a claim, but it's very clearly you can see the footage cut between moments and also the fact that just one perspective of it, it was captioned by the video creator. They just said, we can't conclusively say that this was um, people chanting gas the Jews. So that was the initial report. And then about a week later, after some more footage was published by Sky News and, and shared by the AJA, claiming to show the unedited footage, but then I kind of consulted some uh, expert forensic linguistic experts, as well as finding uh, another third-party report, not not done by myself or, or anyone that I've been in contact with, but a third party who'd also kind of gone to an expert who'd all said that this footage, at the very best, we can say, that does not conclusively show that it says gas the Jews, but actually we suggest it might be something else. Including, I even spoke to someone who was at the event, a third party who wasn't pro or anti, who was filming it, and he said, "I was there. I caught the same moment." And he shared the footage, which was, which was actually the best footage yet. Which, and he was claiming that they said, "Where's the Jews?" And so ultimately, I'm, we made it pretty clear in the both reports, saying that I can't conclusively say what was chanted. I wasn't there. I don't necessarily. At, at, at one point, I didn't have footage of the whole event, and even now that I do, I don't necessarily have all angles. But from what was presented, the the case that this was chanted a direct incitement to violence, something that would which would meet the meet the level of a of a legal threshold for incitement to violence. It's it's, it's difficult to 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 claim that this footage proved that that was chanted. Yeah. Well, also, uh, the alternative footage that emerged of the same moment, the the exact moment that was being sort of identified as the moment when this incitement to violence happened, was not of hundreds of people chanting. It was of a very very small group. Totally. And, and look, the, the fact that it, the, I don't think it's not controversial to say that the AJA um, has been a bit of a fringe organization. I think Mark Dreyfus in the middle of the year called them out for, for something. But after the, the start of the Israel Hamas conflict, or since October 7 at least, they've kind of, I think, had an additional prominence in the media for, for whatever reason. And I think there's, there's questions about this footage and maybe just generally about their kind of credibility in general. You're, we all might remember that they were the people who led the campaign against Kmart when they had the they had the Mary Hammus bags and they were like, no, this is a this is a reminder of Hamas. And so they started a campaign that ultimately had those bags removed. So to get a, get a sense of, I, I think you would say the, the their intentions, at the very least, they are, I would say, quite sensationalist. And so as a result, the importance of this, this reporting was not to deny the experience of people who, who heard and experienced anti-Semitism, which I said we do know actually happened there. The point was to say that when you have footage viewed by millions of people making claims 
chaired by someone who I, a group who I think has a bit of a spotty record, it bears having some, I guess, qualifying it and, and making sure that before you necessarily disagree with what you think you see in here, that you maybe check with third parties. Because ultimately, to defeat hate, we have to be on the same uh, page. And if people can't even agree about what's happened or maybe making accusations that aren't, aren't well justified, then I think that can ultimately be counterproductive to the movement of stopping things like anti-Semitism. Okay, what impact do you think that this reportage had? Because I also seem to recall that it was not too much longer later that the Israeli government issued a travel warning for Jews to Australia. Did that inform that warning at all, as far as you know? That's a good question. I mean, we, we do know that, sorry, so the, 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 the gas the Jews claim, we do know that it, it, it came just before the New South Wales government decided to change and strengthen its hate speech laws. Now, I'm not a legal expert. I actually don't know. I couldn't even, I don't have a very strong opinion on whether it was good or not, but we do at the very least know that that it was one of the things that the government kind of considered in prompting legal change. So again, that, that's one of the reasons why kind of these things matter because these events do shape how politicians respond, how people um, perceive the, the the protesters. And so everything we can do to try and, again, come to a shared understanding as much as we can or at least a shared knowledge that maybe it's hard to judge this claim just off this video, I think is kind of important of course, it kind of requires some kind of nuance to be maybe we are uncertain about thing happen, but I think it's better to be upfront about being uncertain and trust that people will understand that to be and, and reasonable about how they think these things. Because at no point have I tried to report on what I think the motivations were behind presenting the footage this way, because I don't know. There's many explanations. And again, I, I have no idea. But the effect is that people, it became an, it footage that was commented on internationally and affected policy. It does matter. Moments like these, light bulb moments, are really impactful in terms of shaping how we view all of these things. Ken, you've also written fairly recently about a Nazi procession in Ballarat late last year. Um, and I guess in that article, you outline some of the questions that need to be asked when reporting on such events. Can you kind of describe what you think are the main issues or questions that should be addressed in reporting on? Nazis gathering or expressions of anti-Semitism in, in the public domain, how do you, what governs your kind of decision-making on how you go about reporting those sorts of things? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, this is funny speaking to you guys about this because you're like, I feel like some of the experts, but what I think about is for me, I'm, I'm constantly weighing up, giving attention to something uh, versus what the impact it has. And also the idea of what is news. News is something that is, of course, is kind of new. And in a way, sometimes I think some of the sensationalist reporting that sometimes happens on the far right, as much as it deserves attention, might, again, not actually assist in helping people understand it and may actually assist in in the groups who are who are trying to communicate hate. So in this, ex- this example, it was the NSN guys who went down to Ballarat and did a march and of course, in the local news, it got attention and actually got national attention as well. It was written up in the ABC and, and the Age and that kind of places. And the question that I, I kind of wanted to ask is, I'm not trying to besmirch the journalists who do this. And I, and I know a lot of the time I'm someone who spends probably more time than most journalists thinking about this, but there's a lot of generalist reporters who might get called onto this and might be like, oh, Nazis in Ballarat, that's obviously scary and newsworthy, of course. But I guess the flip side is, I guess I just wanted to, to question and make people think about, well, when we cover this, 
are we adequately covering the fact that the NSN guys, to my understanding, uh, and forgive me if I'm wrong, I haven't been closely following them recently, but haven't really shown uh, that many significant changes in what they're doing, at least in the surface. They kind of turn up to events. Usually it's either to events where there are police so that they're kind of, I think, probably semi-protected or in the case of going to, and so that was when they go to protest and stuff or when they uh, go to Ballarat where no one is kind of expecting them. And they try to make a scene by report in 2021 on the NSN handbook, which was elites, which kind of said, we, we want to use the media to amplify our message, to get us out there. I think that sometimes reporting on them makes it out that these guys are these impressive, growing movement of, of essentially big, strong men. But actually, I think that it is also worth reporting that it doesn't seem like their numbers are massively growing. They don't turn up in a lot of places. They only turn up in places where they don't think they're going to have counter-protesters or at least that there's going to be some kind of police presence to stop any potential skirmish. These are not guys who, and all the time, they're all wearing marks because they don't want their identity revealed because they know that the consequences still of being someone associated with these high, hurtful ideologies is there are probably professional ramifications there's just the fact that everyone who knows that is going to be like you're a, a fluido for being a nazi in 2024 so yeah i mean look it, it, it was kind of i'm not trying to wag the finger at anyone but i think it's really important that when we see these images we know that these groups are taking advantage of the fact that they're a spectacle but ultimately we need to make sure that we communicate that they're not a, a really exciting energized movement but actually just a bunch of bunch of blokes who dress up and, and travel around the country on the weekends mostly to kind of get attention uh cam switching gears you've also done some reporting recently on artificial intelligence a favorite topic here at yeah now <laughs> yeah what have people been using this amazing technology for it seems they are just saying computer show me some norks yeah, man, this is this 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 is gross. So, look, using technology to create or, or, or to yeah to create explicit images, call it pornography, or, or if it's non-consensual, just naked images of people, predominantly women, for a long time. Obviously, there was Photoshop, and then there were the kind of deep fakes, which is kind of putting someone's face on someone else's body. Now with AI, we're kind of at the, the the point where anyone with a desktop computer, a bit of spare time and the right website can generate entirely new images of people, whether they're like fake people, completely made up by AI, or in the case that I looked at, fake pictures that seem realistic of specific people. And so I kind of found these examples, particularly from one particular platform, where it, it was mostly used to create um, it, it, they were trading AI models. So think about essentially dedicated programs to create naked images of real people, usually without their consent. Everyone from Margot Robbie to an Australian Instagram user who was a young woman with, she's 20 something and has 2000 followers. So not, not a big person by any means, but someone had scraped the downloaded 30 images from her, from her Instagram and used that to create a model that could kind of create essentially photorealistic, very, very difficult to determine is not real images of them. That of course can be, was, we know is typically used to kind of create create non-consensual explicit images of them or what's known as a crime, image-based abuse. And so we're kind of at the point where people have heard ad, ad nauseum, you can't trust what you see anymore. What I think people aren't kind of ready for is that now anyone could create a super realistic image of you doing whatever you want, usually based on images that are already out there on the internet 
and you have no recourse. There's nothing you can really do. Maybe if that someone's been making non-explicit, uh, has been making explicit images of you, you can pursue them for image-based abuse, which is a, a crime in many states in Australia. But if someone's just like, made a model of you that can produce images of you doing whatever, you actually have no recourse. And as a result, you just, it, it's not just that we can't trust what we see, but also the violating feeling of being, anyone can do this to try and embarrass you or to make you seem like you're doing things. And, and now that's just really available to anyone with a computer. It seemed like there was a, there's a bit of catching up to do legislatively because you could potentially pursue someone in relation to image-based abuse through the existing legislation, but you might run into the roadblock of all of that legislation is to do with photographs and it's releasing photographs where they, these are completely new images. In the, yeah. in the story, you talk about the e-safety commissioner could potentially sue things on a case-by-case basis, but you can't just be going to Julian Grand every time this pops up. Yeah, and I mean, look, the ESF Commission is an interesting topic that we've talked about forever, but she's kind of, the best way to imagine her is almost a, a public-private ombudsman who will take reports and go to tech companies and, and, and often get them to take it down by themselves. But if not, she does have some powers to force people to take certain kinds of content down. But like you said, the example of one person I spoke to, she was like, I, I, I don't have to go through this. I don't want to draw any attention to it. And so as a result, no. if she doesn't report it, no one else can pursue them over it, even if they are making explicit images. It's a pretty, it's a pretty sad state. And unfortunately, it's just the, the thing that's scary is now just it's both so realistic, so easy to do, and it really available to anyone who just has a desktop computer. Is this kind of material being used to harass the individuals whose images have been used to create this stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about this, these AI models, which is the kind of the latest development, but there's a story I never reported on, but I think kind of got mentioned maybe in another person's story, which is that there, there was a case of someone who was using, was creating naked images or, and, and image-based abuse, I should use the correct term, of public figures and journalists as a way of kind of embarrassing them. And so often we think of this kind of stuff in terms of people using it I mean, to put it bluntly, for their own sexual gratification. But the, the reason that image-based abuse is 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 a crime is not just because it's obviously that's a kind of a no-no. We understand that you shouldn't be doing that to other people, but it's also because it's uh, it's it's used to embarrass and harass people. It's not just a tool of sexual gratification. It's it's an attempt to wield power over people, and like I said almost always women. Cam, the other AI story you've reported on recently is that a lot of art. Sites like Etsy, eBay, etc., have been flooded with this fake Indigenous art produced by robots. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found when you looked into the the robot art? Yeah, another another delightful use of AI. I mean, I, I just it's not news, I think, to anyone now that visual artists are being affected by AI tools, which make it as easy just as typing in a web browser to kind of create realistic images. It's mostly affecting the kind of, I don't know how to say it, the low end of artists, people who are doing uh, freelance graphic design or stock imagery and stuff. But one thing I was interested to see is that one industry that seems already being affected is the Indigenous uh, art industry. People might know that they already face huge problems with counterfeits. I think there was a, a, a government report in 2020 that said that 75% of the souvenirs and, and, and Indigenous arts goods that are sold have no connection to Indigenous peoples. So already dealing with people producing Indigenous art who aren't Indigenous. But what I kind of found was that, again, people are training models to produce 
Indigenous art that's trained on, on real artist work that's then either being used to as stock imagery, which is being sold and platforms are making money off, or on the other platforms where it's being sold as prints or, or goods, phone cases, which again, all these platforms are making money off. And I thought a quote from one artist I spoke to was quite good, which he said is this really sums up how colonial this, that the mindset that people who produce AI is they've come, they've taken my work without permission. They're then using that to kind of create things and exploit my work that often actually competes directly against me. And it, it, it's pretty sad. Cam, you've also been writing a book. Yes. This is actually breaking news. No one else has it. This is, this is, your, this is your scoop. Exclusive. Yeah. Breaking news, Cam Wilson writing a book about Australian conspiracy theorists, which, to which end you've been thinking long and hard about Pete Evans, more perhaps than anyone ever should. <laughs> Nevertheless, what have you come, what conclusions have you reached about our good friend Pete? Yeah, I mean, look, he's, he really is Australia's conspiracy theorist in chief. And I think this, the story of conspiracy, his, his journey, which was obviously he was a, a big wellness uh, figure through the 2010s and and ultimately his journey into outright explicit far right and at even one point neo-nazi ideas kind of was actually it was almost it's, it's a it's an example of how many people throughout the covid pandemic also followed that same route so it's a very interesting character but the thing that i've kind of been focusing on is just been doing some research on him for the book and trying to understand him and understand the media coverage of him and how he became who he is and what's so interesting is that he is completely a figure who was created by Australian media. And it's, it's funny that he is such an anti-mainstream media guy because he, everything he has, his entire, his livelihood and his, his audience is entirely due to, to mainstream media. He was doing t- TV. He first started doing it in the mid uh, 2000s. He was actually, interestingly, he was a, he left school, didn't know what he wanted to do, read a Tony Robbins book and then decided to become a chef because he was shy. Uh, but then a year later, he started up a, a restaurant with his brother and then ended up launching a kind of restaurant group, which is very trendy in Sydney. But when he first started doing TV in the mid-2000s, he, was, he said he hated it. But then by the start of the 2010s, he'd kind of come around to this mindset that he could he, he stopped viewing it about himself but started thinking of it as a way to reach people. And what's kind of interesting is that the, the reason that most people kind of thought that he was started to think that it was a bit funny was that 2012 moment i don't know if you guys remember but it was the day on the plate in uh, the city morning herald or the good weekend where he he said he had all these things including activated almonds and that was that remains to this day to be a bit of a meme about the bizarre food trends that wellness people had but what was interesting in that in that in that interview that he did about his what he eats in a day, he also mentioned that he has what's called alkalized water, which is water that you've, you've messed with the pH levels. That's a kind of wellness thing. But also to to change the pH level, you often extract the fluoride. So even from early early days, he was kind of kind of showing about how he had these anti science beliefs. And then up until the big moment was when everyone kind of changed their opinion on him was 2015 when he released a book that had a a, a do-it-yourself baby formula <laughs> which was made out of bone broth and, and some doctors had a look at it and this would kill babies. Not only should you give babies formula, you shouldn't do it yourself, but also this could specifically kill them. But that was 2015. That was, that was, that was really the first huge like controversy he had. He'd been doing My Kitchen Rules for that point by for five years. The next year he would become, My Kitchen Rules would become the most watched commercial television uh, show. He became Australia's most read author. 
And and that was the point at which the media maybe could have said, well, do we really want to keep promoting this guy? He did a really good job whenever he was on the show of presenting him, not bringing across his paleo beliefs or any of his other wellness stuff. He totally he played a character like any good host at a restaurant would do. He was he was there. He was the, Australia's favorite home chef. But it was at that moment that they stuck with him. Obviously, it made Seven, his publisher, all the brands that he, he was associated with, all of them a lot of money. But also, it really legitimized him. From there, he became more and more openly conspiratorial, sharing bizarre beliefs. And yet, mainstream media essentially stuck with him until 2020. Obviously, the pandemic happened and, and maybe COVID and his COVID denialism and then ultimately his sharing a neo-Nazi, a picture with neo-Nazi imagery on it was the line for people. But actually, another c- contributing factor was that the TV ad market fell through, kind of collapsed during COVID. My Kitchen Rules had its its ratings had also dropped. He was no longer worth it to the network, so they, they ditched him. But along this way, this whole journey, he built one of the biggest Facebook audiences in Australia. He brought so many people along with him. He was enabled by to do that by these mainstream media networks who he spent a large portion of his of his career undermining. And then ultimately, the result is everyone, the media, I think, very much turned on him and, and he, he clearly was uh, reached a new level of, of being cooked. But reflecting, he would not have been as anywhere near as impactful or as influential if not for the fact that I think commercial media who were making so much money off him, turned a blind eye. And in that way, he's in a weird way, he's actually very similar to Trump. He's a huge fan of Trump and he is, is a very media savvy kind of guy. And he now is out of the limelight and, and has kind of moved on to a new stage of, of what he's doing, which hopefully I'll, I'll be able to write some more about soon. But it is just interesting to think about. We were talking just before about the neo-Nazis in the media. The, the media, even traditional media things, television is still is massive, has such a big impact. The people who we choose to promote, the issues that we choose to give oxygen to have an enormous consequence. And, and that is why we should be critical. I've made mistakes. Other media people who I think are great have made mistakes. It's it, the whole point and being critical. And, and I know you two have been critical in the past as well is, is ultimately not because we want to kick journalists in the shins, although some people do, but it's mostly because the impact it has on people's lives is so great. And we should be so, so careful and constantly reflecting on whether the information we're giving people is, is leading them down the right track or is potentially exposing them to to hatred in a way that doesn't let them know that about the the negative impact it has on on all of Australia. Well, Cam can't relate to the making mistakes thing, but we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on. If people want to find you, you are on various platforms, including x.com. x.com, Wilson. yeah, yep, and, and keep an eye out for the book. Yeah, it's a, no, coming in September 2025. So don't stay too peeled, but just keep keep uh, checking checking in on me every now and again. Yeah, all right. I was going to say if you said September 2024, no, okay, no but, book publishing. Oh, it's sorry. <laughs> don't worry about this book, listeners. You'll hear from Cam again before it comes out. Don't worry. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, gents. Thanks, Cam. All right, Andy. That's our show. We'll catch you next week. Yep. See you then.
Solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. 